Good afternoon. I am very encouraged uh, by our brethren, um, by the opportunity that we have to, to be here, by the opportunity that we have to be together um, with so many of our brethren, both here uh, and our spiritual family at Eastside as well as elsewhere. Um, and I, I'm encouraged by the, the love and the unity, the, the mutual encouragement and support that we have among the brethren here. Uh, it's especially comforting in a time such as this to have a spiritual family that, that bands together, uh, that seeks to serve one another. And I, I want to encourage us to continue to do that, uh, to continue in this time to reach out to one another, to, to see how best we can build each other up, especially in this time of isolation. But we at Eastside don't always agree on everything. Um, in fact, not everyone shares the exact same convictions on, on how we each personally need to handle the current crisis. Uh, some feel more convicted about exercising caution and love for their brethren, while others feel maybe more convicted about the priority of our physical assembly at this time. Um, we may differ on whether or not it's legitimate for individual families to partake of the Lord's Supper in their homes, um, or whether they need to be present in a physical assembly to do so. There, there are differences in conviction among us about the, the women wearing head coverings or, or, or speaking up in certain contexts in the assembly, differences uh, about the, the use of instruments in worship, differences about what legitimate uses of our collected funds as a local church are. How do we handle differences? How do we handle those differences? I think we need to recognize from the outset that not a single issue that applies to God's will in our lives, not, not a single issue that uh, applies to what he desires from us as his people or, or what is pleasing in his sight is an unimportant issue. If it's about what God desires from us, then it's important. Um, but we have to grapple sometimes with two seemingly conflicting principles in the scripture, and that's the, the attitudes of, of unity and the principles of truth. You can't really have one without the other. If you have unity without truth, it's pointless. We might as well be the, the people building the Tower of Babel who are all unified in something that God didn't want them to be doing. Uh, and God, in that case, divided them, confused their languages. So unity without truth is pointless, but truth without unity, without the attitudes that promote peace among us, can simply be destructive. So we need both the attitudes of unity and peace as well as the, the principles and convictions of truth. And these dual goals of unity and truth were really the foundation of what many of us might know today as the restoration movement. Now, maybe you've heard that term, maybe you haven't, uh, but historically around the 17, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, there were some men like Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, and many others, who were, were fed up with the continued splintering of many different churches around them. Uh, all the different churches that had their creeds and had their statements of faith and their doctrines and, and their human organizations that were determining what they believed and taught. And so they rallied around the principle of Christians finding unity in God's word and God's word alone. You may have heard the phrase um, 
coined by Thomas Campbell, but really found from the principles of 1 Peter 4, 11, we're going to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. If we're going to find unity, we're going to find it in God's word and God's word alone. However, about 100 years later, the late 1800s, early 1900s, that historical movement known as the Restoration Movement had already split into three branches um, that some might know today as the, the Disciples of Christ, the Christian churches, and the churches of Christ. I am not a big proponent of Restoration history. Um, I, I, I don't think that we should be loyal to any historical movement outside of New Testament Christianity. Uh, I don't think we should be loyal to, to any historical figure outside of Christ himself. Um, but I think there's value in us going back and, and thinking about some of those things only uh, to evaluate why divisions took place, why, why divisions take place. Um, are certain divisions warranted or unwarranted? Um, and how can we avoid those problems today? And so that's really the foundation of what I want us to consider today. The ask the question, when must doctrine divide us? Now, what we're going to see is there are times where doctrine needs to separate us, where we need to separate from some error, some de destructive teaching, uh, some sin. But certainly many times doctrine should not divide us. Well, how do we navigate through that biblically? Um, among religious theologians today, um, many have, have divided doctrines into three categories. Uh, what they might call primary or core doctrines that affect our fellowship to God, whether or not we are Christians. What they would call secondary doctrines, which don't affect whether or not we are a Christian, but may affect our fellowship with other people. And then a third category that they call uh, third order or tertiary matters of doctrine that they say shouldn't affect our fellowship even with one another. Well, when you look at the Bible, you don't see that. <laughs> Nowhere do we see defined for us, well, these doctrines, these are core, uh, and these are, are just tertiary. Well, the Bible doesn't talk in those terms. What we are going to see, and I, and I hope that we will see today biblically is that there are times where doctrine needs to divide us and where it should not divide us. Uh, sometimes where division is necessary and sometimes where it is not necessary. And so that's what I want us to consider today. I think we need to be very careful about setting up our own personal system of doctrines. And we say, well, these doctrines, these are primary. These are really important. And these, well, they're just not so important. As we said, Anything that applies to God's will in our life is important. What is pleasing in his sight, no matter what category we think it in, is in, is important if we're striving to please him. I think the first thing that we need to recognize is that perfect unity is God's design. This is the ideal, and we ought not to let go of that ideal in our lives. Turn your Bibles into John chapter 17 with me. John chapter 17. Here, Jesus, uh, near the end of his life, says this prayer, the, the most lengthy prayer that we have recorded of, of Jesus in the scriptures. Uh, here in John 17, I want you to start reading with me in verse 20. He says here in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What's Jesus' prayer here? He says, I'm not only praying for these disciples that are here with me now, but I'm praying for all those who will believe through their word. Jesus is praying for you and for me. Isn't that amazing? What's his prayer for us today? His prayer is that we would be unified. And he says that we would be unified, first of all, in him and in the Father. Um, We need to be unified in the teaching of Christ, uh, in our common fellowship with God. Unity outside of Christ does us no good, right? Unity without truth is pointless. Our unity has to be within this relationship with Uh, the Son and the Father. It's not unity at any price. It's not that we can just go out and be unified with the atheists and their beliefs. Well, no. Our unity needs to be within our relationship, a legitimate relationship with Christ and the Father. But he also says down in verse 22 that they may be one even as or just as we are one. We need to have a perfect unity in spirit and in teaching. Um, when you think about the type of unity that Jesus and the Father has, what, what does that look like? Do Jesus and the Father just kind of agree to disagree on things? And Jesus says, well, Father, I know you kind of feel this way about it, but I, I really have a different perspective. But you know what? Let's just agree to disagree. Well, no, that's not the standard. That's not unity just as the Father and the Son. Uh, we need to strive for perfect Unity, just as Jesus and the Father are one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Some versions say, speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Our goal is not agreeing to disagree. It's being wholly united in what we teach and practice, coming to common conclusions on matters of God's will within our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to be robots, that we're going to be cookie-cutter Christians. Certainly, we recognize that we differ greatly in our strengths and weaknesses and our levels of maturity and our roles within the body, our background, our, our, our perspectives on certain things. But when it comes to understanding God's will, and his desires for our lives, we must strive for perfect unity because the will of God is unified. Um, Truth is absolute. No two differing conclusions can both be correct. Either something is within God's will or it is outside of God's will. Either it is scriptural or it is unscriptural. Either either it is pleasing to God or it is displeasing. This is what Jesus desires of us, to have perfect unity, to speak the same thing. And that's what we need to desire as well. We can't surrender that ideal. We can't resign to divisions on any matter of what God desires of our lives. So we must not resign to differing conclusion on matters of God's will. We must all be striving to come to a common understanding of truth, to be unified in the way that Jesus and the Father are unified. Uh, But we need to recognize that we're going to constantly be growing towards that ideal. That is the standard. But because of our weakness and our 
immaturity. It is not the reality. We ultimately never will fully realize that ideal here on earth, but we must never stop growing towards it. Turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, notice Paul's attitude about his own spiritual growth here. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You know, we might think of Paul as somebody of great spiritual maturity, right? Uh, Who had a a very deep knowledge of, of God's will. And yet Paul says, I haven't arrived. I haven't gotten there. I still am striving forward. I'm forgetting the things that are behind, reaching forward to the things that are ahead. Later down in verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He's saying if if you're spiritually mature, you're going to need to recognize how much more growing, how much more maturing you have to do. And so none of us is ever going to reach a point in our lives where we just have everything figured out. And and we, all of our beliefs, all of our convictions are exactly what God wants them to be in every single area. Uh, It's going to be a continual process of growth. But notice what he then says in verse 16. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Yes, we have a lot more growing to do. We have a lot more that we're reaching forward to each day. We're not surrendering that ideal. And yet, day by day, we need to live by the convictions that we have have currently come to in our understanding of God's will. Live by that standard. But brethren, even if we personally reached a point in our lives where every single one of our conclusions, every belief, every practice was correct, the ideal still wouldn't be realized here on earth because there are going to be new converts, new Christians who are are growing and maturing. Uh, And so while we we can't just get to a point where we say, well, it's really not important and and we can just kind of agree to disagree, we we need uh, to recognize that we're always going to be growing towards it. We're always going to be striving for it. and so we have to be realistic about that uh, and learn to deal properly with our differences as we grow together. And so we must be humble, patient, and forbearing with one another as we grow. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about walking worthy of our calling. And the first aspect of that is walking in unity. And he says there in Ephesians 4 and verse 2 that we need to do this with all humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Maintaining unity is not solely about making sure that all of my doctrinal positions are correct. Now, that's extremely important that I am seeking in everything that I teach and practice to be going by God's word. But that within itself is not the only principle of unity. No, unity requires me having a certain attitude in working with one another. An attitude of humility, of gentleness, patience, and forbearance with one another. Humility in recognizing that I'm not always right and I might need to change my convictions. Gentleness, patience, and forbearance even if I am right. Knowing that I need to work with others who are different in a constructive rather than a destructive way. I think that really 
is the principle that we see in Romans 14. If you want to turn your Bibles over to Romans 14, the passage that, that Luke read for us a little while ago, we're, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. And I know this is a very difficult passage in many ways, but I hope that we can at least get an overarching understanding of what is being addressed here in Romans chapter 14. Um, here in context, we see that Jewish Christians... Uh, who had grown up observing every aspect of the Mosaic Law, now coming to Christ, still felt that in many ways they needed to keep the food laws, especially, and, and some of the Jewish celebrations of the Law of Moses. But not only did they feel that they needed to, they felt that even some of the Gentile comrades needed to observe those food laws. And so here in Romans 14, uh, Paul is addressing this conflict between Jew and Gentile in particular, um, and uh, specifically this, this um, issue of food laws and what they were allowed to eat. And we see he addresses who he calls the strong brother and the weak brother. In this case, the weak brother is the one who thinks he can only eat certain things that meet the laws of the, uh, the law of Moses, whereas the strong brother is the one who believes he has the liberty uh, to, to eat uh, even other types of food. But read with me again the passage that Luke read. And Romans 14, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 5. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What is Paul saying here? Well, he says there in verse 5 that, that both parties in this issue should be fully convinced in their own mind. Um, but certainly they can't both be correct in this. Uh, one is weak and one is strong, as he makes evident in how he speaks of them throughout this chapter, uh, whether they realize that or not. So what's to be done when there is an issue such as this? Well, first look what he says to the strong brother. He says there in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. So the strong brother is to, to welcome or accept the weak brother, and not to pass judgment on him, not to, to immediately sever ties with him because he has a, a different conviction on this matter. Um, and later on in verse 3, it says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And so he's not to view with contempt the one who feels that he can't uh, violate these, these Jewish food laws. Um, and even furthermore, later on in verse 20 and 21, we see that he's to make sure that he doesn't influence his brother to violate his convictions. It says in verse 20 of this chapter, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 
And so the strong brother here, even though we're going to see Paul makes it evident that he is correct in his understanding of this, has a responsibility towards the weak brother to accept him, to welcome him, not to to sever ties with him, not to pass judgment or, or despise or look on him with contempt, and to make sure that he is acting in such a way that is not going to, to tempt him to violate his current convictions. But I want you to notice what he then says at the beginning of chapter 15. Because sometimes we think, well, chapter 14 is a, a chapter by itself. We can just kind of stop at the end. But really, he goes on to talk about this at the beginning of chapter 15. He says in verse 1 of chapter 15, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up or for his edification. What, what's the goal of the strong brother here? Is it just to abandon his brother and his weakness and his incorrect conclusions about God's will for his life? Well, no, it's for him to be forbearing and patient, not to act in such a way to sever ties with him or, or to cause him unnecessary stumble, that he might build up his brother, that he might help his brother grow in this area. How is that best going to be accomplished? Is it going to be accomplished by cutting him off because of this difference that they have? Well, no, it's going to be accomplished by maintaining peace while they have an opportunity to work through these things to help one another come to a proper understanding of this. Well, what, what about the weak brother here? Now, remember the weak brother reading this isn't going to identify himself as weak. It's not, you know, that that's the label that he's given himself. Um, Many times we may see ourselves as the strong brother, but Paul is going to make it evident in this case that, that he is the one who is incorrect on this issue. But notice in verse 3, after he gave the instructions to the strong not to despise the one who abstains, he says, And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Here, the, the one who's not eating is convicted enough about this that he's tempted to pass judgment and say, My, my brother's sinning by eating these things. I can't have fellowship with him. But here, the weak brother is instructed, do not pass judgment, do not condemn him. Well, why, Paul? If, if, if this is wrong, if this is sinful, why, why should I not pass judgment on him? Notice what his answer is in verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, later on in this passage, Paul's going to make it clear that this brother is not incorrect for eating these things. But that's not what he initially says. He doesn't say, don't pass judgment on him because this isn't actually wrong and he's right and you're wrong. He'll go on to make that clear. But his first point is God is going to judgment. He's going to stand or fall before God. Uh, and God is able to make him stand. Even if this is incorrect, even if this is sinful, he will stand or fall before God. And God, in his grace, can make him stand by being merciful towards his immaturity and cleansing him of his ignorant sin. This weak brother who believes his conclusion is correct and he's the strong one must exercise the same forbearance and patience in trying to help the brother he views as weak to grow. If God is merciful to his immaturity, 
then I need to be merciful to his immaturity as well. I think that's the principle that we see here. In verse 19 of this chapter, perhaps we might take this as the, the theme verse of this entire section. He says in verse 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding or edification. Here are our two goals. We're, we're trying to maintain peace and we're also trying to help each other grow, to come to a better understanding of what God's will is for our lives. And we need both. We can't just take one and not the other. We can't just have peace and say, well, this is not, this is not important. We're just going to be unified. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to work through it. Nor can we just try to tell my brother what's right. And if he doesn't agree with me, then we're, we're just going to cut off ties and that's it. Well, no, both are needed. We try, try to do the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. I think that's a principle that we're seeing here in Romans 14. If I pass judgment, condemn and withdraw and divide from my brother the minute that he disagrees with me, I have no opportunity to help him grow. And he has no opportunity to help me grow. Maybe I'm the weak brother. Maybe I'm the one that's wrong in this case. So many times, I think when we look at Romans 14, we, we want to kind of categorize it and say, well, this is a Romans 14 issue and this is not a Romans 14 issue. I think that's not the correct way to view this passage. The principles of pursuing the things that make for peace and the building up of one another apply in every situation. Uh, and so it's not that, well, this is not a Romans 14 issue, and so I, I don't have to be forbearing with my brother in this case. Now, now I can divide with him. Well, no, the, the, the principles here are principles that apply across the board. I think the problem is not applying Romans 14 through too broadly, it's applying it incorrectly. Uh, the principles of forbearance apply in every case. Now that doesn't mean that my brother's issues, my, my brother's um, convictions on this issue are correct. That truth is relative, that it's unimportant, that we can just agree to disagree and move on, that I, I resign to let him continue in his unscriptural or, or sinful practice. That's not the principle here. It does mean that I am humble and patient and forbearing so that we can maintain peace while we seek to help each other grow, to recognize where my brother is wrong or perhaps to recognize where I am wrong. I think that's the principle that we're seeing here. Um, does this mean that I just indefinitely tolerate my brother's error or sin? No, I don't think that's what we're going to see. Um, but I think we first need to understand this principle of forbearance, even when this is something that we're both convicted is an issue of right and wrong, of scriptural and unscriptural. And so when must doctrine divide us? I, I just spent over half of our time uh, in introduction. Uh, but I think if we want to know when doctrine must divide us, we're not going to find that in Romans 14. Romans 14 teaches us principles that, as, as I said, I think apply across the board. But we're going to see some other principles from other places that will, will limit when we can continue to show forbearance and where we need then to, to uh, cause a separation. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18 and 19, we see in some cases division must occur. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18 and 19, Paul writes to these brethren, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, 
For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What, what is Paul saying there? He's saying if, if anybody is approved in this situation, if anybody is, is correct uh, in, in their relationship with the Lord, there's going to have to be some division um, because there is some serious error going on here. There are times where there is, is error and sin that cannot continue to be tolerated and division is necessary so that the approved might stand fast and not compromise the truth by fellowshipping with error. We, we see in Revelation 2, in verse 20, um, Revelation 2 and verse 20, as Jesus, I believe, is speaking to the, the church in Thyatira, um, he says, but I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Wait a second, I thought tolerance was a good thing. I thought we were supposed to forbear with one another. But here he says that this is against them, that they're tolerating this woman Jezebel. There comes a point where there should no longer be a, a forbearance and a tolerating of error and sin. In fact, he says, I, I gave her an opportunity to repent and she didn't. So there comes a point where tolerance is no longer the approach that needs to be taken. There are some circumstances in which we must draw a line in the sand and say, uh, if others are not willing to surrender their false teachings, we must divide with them. Well, when is that? Well, let's look at some biblical principles. We're just going to briefly look at four biblical principles. And this may not be an exhaustive list. I'd encourage you to continue to study these things on your own. But I think we see, first of all, that when there is a divisive spirit, division needs to take place. Turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, and we're going to look starting in verse 9. Here Paul instructs Titus, uh, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Here some versions say, reject a factious man after the first or second admonition. Um, and you notice, it doesn't matter what the issue is. It may be foolish controversies and genealogies uh, and quarrels about, about the law. But if, if this is a factious, a divisive spirit, it says you warn him and you warn him again. And if he's going to continue to have that attitude and that approach, regardless of what the issue is, you need to separate from that influence. Uh, and so here, this is really more of an issue of heart and attitude than simply an issue of, of doctrine. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, we see this applying maybe more directly to um, uh, some false doctrine. Romans 16 and verse 17, we read, Mark or note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and turn away from them. So if somebody is causing division, causing others to stumble, causing rifts within God's people, uh, whether this is some doctrine that is contrary to the teaching we've received from God, or whether this is just some foolish controversy. You know, what, what color the, the carpet is going to be, or, or who wrote Hebrews, or something like that. Uh, if, if my attitude is that of division, and if I am causing uh, that kind of harm to God's people, then I need to be 
rejected. I need to be turned away. Or I can't, we can't continue to forbear and tolerate that. Um, but in addition to that and closely related to that, I think we see that division needs to play place when it is doing damage to the faith of other people. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 16. We read, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so here, what is to be uh, avoided here? What, what are they to, to keep away from? Well, it's those who are causing damage. He refers to them as being like gangrene. Uh, many of you may, may know that my younger brother, uh, when he was uh, a baby, he was adopted from uh, an orphanage in Siberia, and at a young age, he received a shot from an infected needle and developed gangrene. Uh, and because they didn't have the, the medical technology to take care of that or to prevent that, uh, he had to have his arm amputated. Uh, and so when you think about that concept, when, when that part of the body is now threatening the whole, threatening the health of the whole, some radical approach needs to be taken. Uh, even division, something that God hates, but something that may be necessary to preserve the well-being of the whole. But, but think about it this way for a moment. If, if you received a wound on your hand, what's the first thing that, that you're going to do? You say, oh, it needs to be amputated. Well, of course not. No, you, your first approach is you're going, to be you're going to try to take care of that wound. You're going to try to bandage it up. You're going to try to make sure that it doesn't develop infection. And then if it continues to threaten the health of the whole, well, then some radical approaches might need to be taken. But I think that, that illustrates to us how we need to approach these issues. When, when there's some difference among us, it's not that, you know, well, you, you believe this and I believe that, and so we, we need to take care of this. We need to cut it off. Well, no, what we need to do is we need to work through that. And I think that's really the principles of Romans 14, that forbearance with one another, to work through these issues. And yet, when it becomes something that is damaging the faith of others, causing others to, to shipwreck in their faith, then some radical approaches need to be taken. It's interesting, Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5 and 7, verse 7 through 10, Paul addresses some Jewish brethren who were trying to force circumcision onto the Gentiles. And in that context, he refers to them as a little leaven that leavens the whole lump of dough. And what needs to be done in that case, they need to purge out that leaven, that it might not do damage to the whole. It talks about how uh, this teaching what was hindering and troubling or disturbing the faith of the, the Galatian churches. But you know what? That issue is really the same general issue that we're seeing in Romans 14. It's do we need to continue to keep the old law? 
And yet, here these brethren, by forcing that issue and making it a doctrine that, that the Gentiles had to conform to if they were going to be right with God, are referred to as leaven that's leavening the whole lump of dough. And so it was not simply that these Jews had a personal conviction that they themselves needed to be circumcised or that they themselves needed to continue to keep aspects of the old law, but they were spreading this teaching in a way that was affecting the Gentile brethren around them. It was going to upset their faith. And so I think we need to think about that in our own disagreements. Uh, If somebody develops a personal conviction that I believe is wrong, that I believe is unscriptural. My first response to that needs to be in patience and forbearance to, to work through that. Um, not to say, well, if you believe that and I believe this, then we just can't, we just can't work together. We can't be, have fellowship with one another. Uh, well, no, it's when that conviction uh, does damage to the, the faith of others that a more uh, radical approach needs to be taken. Um, certainly it's important to be watchful, to make sure that no destructive heresy seeps in and starts negatively influencing the flock. Paul warns the, the churches, um, the, the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, that they are to watch out for the flock and the well-being of that flock, that it, uh, savage wolves don't come in and, and devour the flock. But we can't draw dividing lines every time our personal conclusions differ. We must strive for peace and for edification. Uh, and so we, we need to have that forbearance in working with one another. Not that these issues are unimportant. As we said, any issue that applies to God's will for my life is important. And it's something that we need to talk about. Um, but it's not always something that we have to divide over. I think thirdly, we see that when willful or rebellious sin is involved, Division needs to take place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have a situation in which there's a man who is committing adultery with his father's wife. Um, And such clear immorality, if it is tolerated, is going to spread like leaven. It will damage the influence of the church on the world uh, around them. Paul tells them in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5 to deliver such one to Satan ultimately for the deliverance of his soul in the day of judgment. In verse 7, he says, clean out the old leaven. Verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so when when there is a brother or sister who is involved in sin and is continuing in that sin, that needs to be addressed. That cannot be tolerated. Uh, And Matthew 18 gives us a pattern for how to handle that. Again, it's not, I notice this wound within the body. I say, oh, we got to cut that off. No, Matthew 18 tells me how I need to approach it. It says that if if somebody has sinned against me, um, if I'm aware of somebody's sin, I need to go to them between me and them alone. And if they hear me, I have won my brother. That's the goal of that. But if they don't, if they refuse to repent, like Jezebel in in Revelation 2, if if she's been given time to repent, but she's not willing to, then Matthew 18 tells me I need to take one or two more, that every word might be established. 
And if they don't hear them, then I need to take it unto the church. And if they don't hear them, then I need to put them in the category of the heathen or the tax collector, it says. And so it's not when my brother sins, division needs to take place. Now, when my brother sins, you who are spiritual, go and restore him. But if my brother continues in sin, and my brother is not willing to repent, and has the attitude, well, yes, that's what God's word says, but I'm going to do this. Well, then that can't be tolerated. Division must take place. And this fourth category, uh, we, we could say a whole lot more than we have time to about this, but when it is clear from scriptures that someone is not in fellowship with God. I think we, when we think about fellowship, we need to recognize that the foundation of our fellowship is our common relationship with God. We, we are fellow children of a common father. We, we are fellow sheep of a common shepherd. First John chapter one and verse three says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. The foundation of our fellowship is our common fellowship with God. But I cannot accept as my brother the one who God does not accept as his child. In fact, Romans 14, the, the very foundation of that principle there is God has accepted him. Well, what if God has not accepted him? What if he is living in rebellious sin? What if he has never given his life to the Lord? Well, then, then that doesn't apply. And so if somebody has not committed their life to the Lord, buried their old man of sin in baptism, been raised to walk in newness of life, if they haven't obeyed the gospel, if they don't believe that, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, uh, well then no, they're not my brother. Uh, all of these instructions about how I'm to, to deal with my weak brother, well that doesn't apply. We're not talking about a brother here. We're talking about somebody who is outside of fellowship with God. Uh, turn with me to 2 John chapter one, <laughs> second John verse uh, nine, second John only has one chapter. Um, second John, we're going to look at verse nine and 10 here. Here we read, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and give him any greeting. That's a pretty serious statement there. But he says if we want to have fellowship with God and, and thus have fellowship with one another, we need to be abiding in the teaching of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean that in every belief, in every conviction, in every practice of my life, I have everything figured out and I know that I'm exactly, well, well, no, it's, is the teaching of Christ the guiding principle of my life? Am I walking in the light? Notice what he, John writes in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, what's the foundation of our fellowship with one another? It says if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Does that mean that I'm 
living sinless, that, that I have everything figured out and I know I'm doing everything every day exactly how God wants me to? Well, no, he says if we're walking in the light, then the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Uh, my brother-in-law, Marshall McDaniel, uh, said, uh, walking in the light doesn't mean you're sinless. It means you sin less and less, and when you sin, you confess. Uh, and I think that's a memorable way to remember what this passage is talking about. If we are striving to walk in the light, if, if the doctrine of Christ is the guiding principle of our lives, and in every area that we recognize that we're wrong, that we're sinful, we're seeking to change, then we can have fellowship with one another because God is able to make us stand. Not because we have everything figured out. Not because we are, are perfect in, in every aspect. How, how do we struggle through these differences as, as we each mature and as we grow? Well, we recognize that God is forbearing and that God is gracious. And if we are only seeking each day to walk in the light as he is in the light, then he makes us to stand. And so as we think about our fellowship with one another, uh, it's not that we're never going to have differences. It's not that we're ever going to, to see something differently. Well, we're all growing, but we can't let go of that ideal. Um, we need to make sure that if, if somebody comes to me with something from the scriptures um, that shows that, that something that I believe or something that I teach, something that I practice is incorrect, my, my attitude needs to be, well, if that's the case, then I want to change. I want to grow. If I'm the weak brother, I don't want to be the weak brother. I want by God's grace to be strengthened, to be built up, to become stronger in my faith. Um, now, if, if somebody rejects the light of God's word and says, yes, why? Well, I, I know that that is what God's word says, but, but I, I'm not going to do that. Well, then it doesn't matter what the issue is. It doesn't matter what the sin is. If that's my attitude, I'm not in fellowship with God. And if I continue down that road, I can't be in fellowship with God with my brethren. Uh, this certainly is not a comprehensive study. It's not a comprehensive lift, but I hope it's helpful as we think through some of these issues ourselves. I'm thankful for the unity, uh, the, the attitudes of love and forbearance with one another that we have here, but, but we have differences. And it's not that those differences are unimportant, but it's that we need to have the type of attitude, the type of spirit, to work through those differences together. When must doctrine divide us? Well, if there's a divisive spirit, it might need to divide us. If, if it's doing damage to the faith of others, it needs to divide us. If it is involved, involving willful and rebellious continued sin, then division needs to play, take place. Or if it's clear from the scriptures that someone is not in fellowship with God. Um, in all of those cases, I believe the principles of Romans 14 still apply. We still need to be doing those things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Um, and yet, we recognize that in these cases, something more needs to take place uh, to help that individual recognize their sin and turn back to the Lord. We don't just agree to disagree or disregard these matters as unimportant, but we humbly and patiently with forbearance need to seek to help the weak grow. Maybe I'm the weak brother. If so, please help me. Help me grow. What about you today? As, as you put down the mirror of God's word, what, what do you see? Uh, is there some change that you need to make in your attitude towards your brethren? Um, or maybe you recognize today that you're not in fellowship with God. Um, 
ultimately, that this church, these people are not the standard to determine who is and who is not in fellowship with God. We're, we're going to have to make some judgments about that to, to decide who we can be in fellowship and who we can work with. But we're not the standard. God's the standard. And it may be that there's some sin in your life that nobody else knows about, but only God knows about. But that's what matters. God knows. Are you in fellowship with him? If not, don't leave this Zoom call. Don't, don't leave this building today without making that right. Right. God in his grace, if we're willing to confess our sins, is willing to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If We will only seek to walk in the light of Jesus Christ and the light of his word. If there's any change that you need to make today, won't you make it? Won't you allow God's word to do its work within your heart? If there's anything that we can do to help you in that, please reach out. Let us know that we can help you uh, in your relationship with the Lord.